I feel like when that bass hits at the end, I should grab everything I own so it doesn't fall off. Hey, on a scale of like one to woo, how excited are we for Saturated? Oh, come on. Hey, if you don't know what Saturated is, guess what? I'm going to tell you. Saturated is uh, five days where we've decided as a church to gather and saturate in the presence of the Holy Spirit to worship uh, to glorify God and worship in word. And so starting Wednesday night, September 10th, we're gathering. Uh, we've got some guest preachers coming in to edify us with the word. Pastor Stovall Weems will be here with the Celebration Band on Wednesday night. On Thursday night, we got Pastor Dr. E. Mace, Pastor Eric Mason from Philly. He's going to be here on Friday night. We got Pastor Ryan Kwan from Resonate Movement in San Francisco. Saturday night, there's a guy named Phil Wickham that's going to lead us in worship. And then Sunday, we got this guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, his name's Pastor Joby Martin, and he'll be closing it all up. So on a scale of one to woo, how excited are we now? All right, on a scale of one to woo, how excited are we about right now this morning? Good, good. We got some work to do. You should go ahead and start turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This morning, we're going to talk about giving. What, no woo there? What's up with that? There we go. We're going to talk about giving. Here's the deal. Uh, I I know that some of you have brought your neighbors and your neighbor said, I stopped going to church because all the church talks about is money and they want my wallet. Hey, just breathe easy. I don't want your wallet. The church doesn't, is not here to like nickel and dime you. There will be no exit taxes today. Okay. We're going to let everybody go without paying any tolls or anything to get out of here. So this is, this is not about pickpocketing you. This is about talking about the gospel and the fact that the gospel has implications on giving. So we're just going to talk about generosity, and it's, going to be, uh, it's not going to be browbeating, I promise, right? And if it does, just somebody go, eh, and then I'll change tones, okay? So here's the deal. We are going to talk about giving, and here's the reason why. Um, I, I felt like the Lord was pressing on me to talk about it. So last week, we ended Love Incorruptible, which was a series on the book of Ephesians. And next week, we, tar- we start Scripted, which is our beginning of studying the book of Genesis in this week is what we call in the business a standalone, which means I could have preached on anything I want to. I could preach on Philippians chapter three, verse two, beware of the dogs. All right. I could do that if I wanted to. And, and I have plenty of, I have plenty of stuff to talk about, but we'll do that later. Here's, here's the reason why we're going to talk about giving. Um, as I've just kind of done self-evaluation and tried to figure out for me, what's been most intricate to my faith journey. I spent some time in prayer a few months ago, just kind of, I've been asked by people, hey, hey, you seem like you're maturing in your faith. What do you attribute it to? It's one of my favorite questions to ask people. So, so how did God move you to where you're at? Like, I always want to know, like, what was intricate to your story? For me, there was three things that was very, very intricate to me in my faith story. The first one is this. I've just had moments in my life where I have experienced Jesus to the point that I could not doubt his reality. Um, The reason we are pushing saturated at such a high level is this. We believe that there is going to be some times that saturated for you to experience Jesus in such a way that you can look back on it for the rest of your life and not doubt the reality of Jesus. That's one. Uh, The second thing for me, the second intricate part of my faith journey has been the accountability of leadership. Um, 
when you move into leadership, the Lord begins to reveal to you how inadequate you are. The first leadership role I have that I can remember was in seventh grade. Uh, I was learning to play guitar. Uh, our student ministry at the church I was at needed someone to lead in worship. And uh, my dad was a youth pastor, and he said, Ryan, would you, I think you can do this. He spoke courage into me, and he said, let's, let's give it a shot. And so we did. It was glorious. I didn't know a whole lot of songs. I knew how to play Sweet Home Alabama. Ding, 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 ding. And so um, I, I didn't know any other, like, real worship songs. And so we just played Sweet Home Alabama, but we changed it to Sweet Home Up in Heaven. Where the streets are so gold. Come on, right? And then the verses don't really support the gospel, so we just sing Amazing Grace, right? So I'm literally in Rinkin, Georgia, right, at First Baptist Rinkin, Georgia, leading worship to Sweet Home, Alabama, and I realized this about leadership. I'm really inadequate. And if God doesn't show up, there ain't nothing going on. And still sitting here this morning on this stool, I'm thinking, I'm really inadequate. And if God doesn't show up, we're all wasting our time. And so leadership, accountability of leadership Uh, that humility, God's used that reminder of how inadequate I am and how strong he is to kind of help mature me. And then third, and it might be the most important, but for me, in my faith story, one of the most intricate parts of my faith has been generosity. That from a very young age that God stirred in me that giving, that everything I had was his, and so to give to him and to be generous with my money was just, it was a part of the fabric of what it meant to be a Christian from a very early age. I was seven years old. My dad was getting his master's uh, in New Orleans. And so when you go to New Orleans, you know, you're walking down. And first of all, my mom like walked me like this. Like I had blinders on the whole time. But I remember seeing all these guys with trumpets and saxophones and wrapped in Pop-Tart wrappers as if they were like a robot. I was like, you just look like a strawberry strudel. Like it was just like, I don't know what to do. And I remember they had all these boxes and you would just put money in. And so I thought, that's my career. So we went back home to Columbus, Georgia, and I went out in front of the apartment that we lived in and I had a one little drum and I just, da 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 and I would just beat it like I was awesome. And I put a box out and people began to come by and put money in the box. I honestly think they were trying to go, if we give him enough money, he'll stop. But anyway, they, they begin. So I go inside just excited. I've been playing the drums. And my dad, I'm seven years old, and I still remember my dad said, hey, what did, how did God bless you? Like, what did God bless you with? I was like, talent. You know, and, and my dad was like, okay, um, no. Uh, and so he, I was like, what do you mean? Like, he goes, how, what did God bless you? Like, how much money did the Lord give you? And I thought, zero. Like, God doesn't even live in this apartment complex. I didn't see any dude with long, long white hair or robes, right? Pete next door gave me a dollar. But, and so my dad sat me down and said, no, 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 here's the deal. Um, every good and perfect gift is from above. And so at seven years old, my dad began to tell me that all, like, you know, $2.95 that I had made for the sake of my talent, that the Lord had blessed me with it. And he, he, he even reminded me of this. He told me this when I'm seven years old. He goes, hey, there's a Bible verse where Jesus says, Matthew 6, 21. He said, um, where your heart, where your treasure is, your heart is also. And so from a very early age, it just I remember at sitting around the dinner table and dad talking about how our family was going to tithe and give and offer. And from the very uh, beginning of my faith story, generosity and responding to God's goodness was just woven together. And so I remember taking my, my 29 cents and, and tithing and giving to the church at seven years old. And what it taught me was that this is all God's. And so to respond with it is, is just obedience. And so we're going we're gonna to rock out and talk about giving based off the fact that I think giving is an integral part of our faith journey as disciples. And one of the things that I pray for our church is this, is that we would be 
uh, disciple-making disciples, that we would love Jesus and, and fall more and more in love with Jesus every single day. And so with that heartbeat, I want to look at generosity being a response to the gospel. So you guys are in 2 Corinthians 8. I need to set up a little bit for you. Paul is writing this letter to Corinth, the church in Corinth, and he's going to write, and he's writing, and he's actually going around to Corinth and some of the other churches, and he's raising uh, money. He's asking for generosity for the church in Jerusalem. See, the church in Jerusalem uh, was being persecuted and had some really financial needs. They needed money to live on. And so Paul's going around to some other churches and saying, hey, um, for the sake of the gospel, would you be generous and help our friends out in Jerusalem? So that being said, let's dig in. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers. So Paul's writing to believers. I I just pause for a second to say this. Um, If you are a believer in the room this morning, then then I'm going to really, really talk with you a lot. If you're a guest, we just want you to know you can be our guest. Be our guest. Put our, I'm not going to sing Disney for you. But I just want you to know, it's just just like if you have a friend over for dinner, you don't expect them to to pay the lighting bill. And we're going to talk about the lighting bill a little bit this morning. And I just want you to know, if you're a guest, be our guest. We don't expect you to pay the lighting bill. We just want you to receive and hear the gospel because that's what what we're here for. We want you to know, brothers, that about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, and begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace." So Paul is going to write to the church of Corinth and begin to talk about their generosity. And he starts by benchmarking these other churches in Macedonia. And Paul says, hey, um, Titus, Titus is the pastor, Titus, the church of Corinth, you should continue this, this ministry of generosity and let me encourage you that you're not alone. In fact, the Macedonians are really, really balling out when it comes to giving. Like he kind of says, look, those guys are, are they're killing it. He keeps going, verse 7. He goes, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, Paul, if you know a whole lot about the Bible and about Paul as an author and Paul as a minister, his natural tendency is to be abrasive. Like he's kind of an abrasive personality. Him and uh, Paul and Barnabas kind of get into it in the book of Acts. And Paul doesn't put Barnabas on a 90-day improvement program. He just fires him. Hey, we don't need you anymore. Thank you for your time. Clean out your desk. And they kind of move on. And Paul's natural tendency is just to go, here's the matter of fact. Let's go. Let's roll. Pretty abrasive. However, though, when he starts to write this to the church of Corinth, and Corinth is one of the economic major cities of, of, of that kind of Euro-Asia like this area, like first century Corinth was, they were rolling in it, right? And so he begins to talk about their money. And instead of being the normal abrasive Paul, he really softens up. And he leads in by complimenting him going, man, you are overflowing in everything. You're overflowing in faith. You're overflowing in speech. You're overflowing in knowledge. You're overflowing in love and in earnestness. And so Paul's going, man, just like you're overflowing with all those things, 
let's also make sure we're overflowing with generosity. You see, Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he tells that, hey, the church is a body, and it's made up of a lot of different spiritual gifts. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes what we have called the love chapter, and he tells them about what does it mean to have spiritual gifts and to exercise love. And so Paul says, you guys heard those words, and you, have, you, have, you are overflowing in gifts, and you're overflowing in, in love. And Paul says, just like that, you should overflow in your spiritual gifts, you should overflow in your love for God, but we should also overflow in our generosity. You see, as we kind of go around town and you ask the questions, you, you kind of live in, we all live in different parts of the community, uh, and, and the Church 1122 is known for things. And so, uh, I, you know, every, everywhere I go, I get an opportunity to kind of ask people, you know, you know, what do you know about 1122? Sometimes I'll go, hey, aren't you one of those pastors there? And I'm like, yeah, I am. And so we begin to talk about what do you know about the Church 1122, right? Now, about almost every time, I really enjoy getting to speak and engage like our, our family and go, man, tell me what you know. I even love talking to people who don't go to church here and have heard about us, right? Um, I, but I will say this, uh, when you're getting a colonoscopy, probably the most awkward time to be recognized, right? So um, cancer runs in my family, and so I, at 25, got on the every five years colonoscopy plan, which is awesome. And so, like, the only time, like, one of the few things I have in common, like, with the elders besides Jesus is colonoscopies, you know? (laughs) And so um, I I go in, and it's just the five-year mark because my dad's uh, tumor started about mid-30s. And so I'm just, for the sake of my family, I'm, I'm getting a colonoscopy every five years. And so I go in, and, Lord, I'm in there for, I'm in there for two minutes. Pastor Ryan Stone. And what do you say? Like, what are you doing here? I heard there was a discount on Gatorade. I mean, you got nothing, right? And then I sit down and, and one of our 22 or she might even be here this morning. She goes, Pastor Ryan, can I just tell you thanks for everything? The church is, and now we're talking about the church and everybody in the room now knows who I am. And this is just the one spot I don't want to be known. The colonoscopy <laughs> doctor's office, right? That just, that's not. Anyway. So as, I, as we're out in the community, we, all of us have an opportunity to go, what do you know about the church 1122? And some of the things that I've heard from our community is that, man, they, they, it's that church that preaches the Bible. And their lead pastor's kind of jacked. And so if you don't listen to him, he'll put you in a headlock and he might kill you. And he might. And somehow that's a compliment to him. Um, another, another thing that we're known is just, man, they're passionate worship. And they turn the lights down. They turn the music up. And they, they sing like as like hard as they can sing. And we want to be known for that. We're also known as a church that takes a lot of mission trips and makes disciples and has local partners, and we want to be known for that. But I'll tell you, in addition to those, not, not to subtract to those, but in addition to those, what our, our leadership is praying is that we would be known as a culture of generosity. And so when people begin to talk about what, what's known about you as a believer and us as a church, we want to be a, a culture of generosity. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Now, we're going to spend all morning talking about that generosity is a gospel issue. But before I can get there, I need us to understand that generosity is not a law issue. Like, it's foundational for us to know that generosity is not a law issue. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, and he says... You should give. Like, you should be active in this generosity, this act of grace. You should be giving. But it's not a command. So Paul's not going, you should give because you're commanded. Paul says you should give because, uh, you know, love that is authentic is naturally, voluntarily generous. 
right? So love that's authentic and genuine is marked by a voluntary generosity, right? Just think about this. Um, has, I've never gotten tax returns and the IRS says, we actually owe you money back. I have never said, keep it. That just for the sake of the government, right, keep it. I've never done, I've never even paid the IRS extra, right? I, I'm not authentically in love with the tax system, right? It does not stir in me worship, right? It stirs something, but not always necessarily worship. And so I have never, ever, ever voluntarily been generous to the tax code. I <laughs> just haven't, right? But love will make you voluntarily generous. Like you remember boys when you started dating, all of a sudden you're looking at that bait on the tackle on the wall and you're going, I could buy some new lures or I could buy flowers, right? Without love in the equation, men never buy flowers. That's never. But when love gets in there, you're like, yeah, maybe I, maybe I won't get new lures. I'll get flowers for, right? And some of you young guys think, hey, maybe when I get married, I can get, you're, not, you're never getting that bait. It's gone. But what you get in exchange is something far better, I promise, right? You're never getting the bait back, right? So love is authentic when it's marked by generosity. Love is authentic. But here, here's the deal. Love is actually, uh, our generosity is never a law issue. It, it never was a law issue. In fact, the, the first time we see the word tithe, and, and let me just break down some vocabulary for you. Tithe really just means to give a tenth. It's a word that means tenth. So you could think of 10% tithe, giving, okay? The word offering, we, some people use the word offering, and this is what it means to offer. And sometimes we use the word giving, and what that means is to, to give. And so just for simplicity, tithe is to offer or to give 10%, right? Super simple. I could spend hours on the Greek and Hebrew if you want to, but I don't think you do. So we're going to keep rolling. So tithe, offering, giving, those concepts were never, never were a law issue. Here's what I mean. In Genesis chapter 14, right, years, hundreds of years before the Mosaic law was given, the Ten Commandments was given, well before that is when we first see in the Bible the concept of generosity and tithing. Genesis chapter 14, Abraham's um, nephew, Lot, is living in, in Sodom, and um, this raiding party comes through and takes Lot, takes some people, takes animals, just kind of comes through and raids the city and takes off. Well, Abraham finds out and says, that not on my watch. So he gets a little band of people together. He goes and, and beats down this raiding party and destroys them and then takes back from, from them what Lot and his family and, and what was stolen. And then Abraham just takes everything else and says, look, you ain't playing us like that. And Abraham, on his way back to Sodom to plant and to put Lot back in his house, gets met out in the, in the field by Melchizedek, who is the high priest. And the high priest comes and offers this meal and says in the meal, basically is telling Abraham, you know that God gave you victory. And Abraham says, yes. And in in chapter 14 of Genesis, way before the Old Testament, before the the Mosaic law, way before that, Abraham gives a tenth to the high priest. Why? Because rooted years and years before the law was generosity was always rooted in a response to who God is. So it never was the law. It's still not the law. Even if the Old Testament law was what we were hanging on to, this is the reason we're generous, is because the Old Testament law says so. Well, Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament law. And so we're no longer under law or under command. Instead, we are now under the opportunity. We're in gratitude responding to what God has done. That authentic love is marked by voluntary generosity. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul says this, look, you know, like you already know. It follows up, you know, this is not a command. This is an opportunity to prove that your love is genuine. Why? Because you know, you know, we know our generosity can be genuine because we already know that Christ's love is real. So we're responding to what we already know, right? That we can, we can have gratitude because we know Jesus' love is real. And he says, look, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, here's how we know that. Here's how we see this. He was rich and for our sake became poor. Like spiritually, he was rich in heaven. In the, in, in, he is God in the presence of God the Father dwelling. The angels are worshiping him. He's spiritually rich. And Philippians chapter 2 says it this way, that Christ knew that equality was God, that he was equal with God, and yet chose not to grasp it or hold on to it, that, that Jesus went from divinity to humanity, and not even just to humanity, but ended up going to death by, what we, by a criminal's death. He went all the way to the grave. He took on our sin. He took on everything. He took on our death that we would have life and righteousness. That what happened in, in what Jesus did, and this is the gospel, that Jesus was rich and yet laid down his richness to take up our poverty so that we could have his richness. That we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins and Christ died on the cross that we could have his life. That we would trade the righteousness and wealth and life of Christ. That Christ would trade that with us and take our poverty and our sin and our death and pay for it on the cross. So here's the truth. Generosity is a gospel issue. Why? Well, we can be generous because we already know that Christ has been generous towards us on the cross. You see, Jesus gives us he gives us the example. He gives us the principle of, of generosity, of, of forsaking what is rightfully ours in order to give to others. He gives us the principle, but not only that, Christ gives us the ability. See, if we're dead in our sins and we see a principle of generosity, all it can create for us is guilt because we don't have the ability to ever step up and be generous. But what Christ did on the cross was not just give us this example. He actually gives us the ability to respond generously because he has already so abundantly, richly blessed us and given us life. We got to talk about the implications of this. Like we know, we're no, we can be generous because Jesus was generous. But what would we be generous for? You see, at its root, to just be generous, to just be thankful and worshipful because Christ took us from death to life really is enough. Like at its root, that would be enough. But, but Christ in his sovereignty, God in his sovereignty has chosen for us the ability that generosity would spur even more than just worship. It would spur life change. It would spur, it would spur uh, evangelism. It would spur all these things. And the fact that generosity is not just a gospel issue because of what Christ did on the cross, but generosity is a gospel issue for you and me. It's a gospel issue for the church. It's a gospel issue for the world because the world is in need of what Christ has done. So we've got to ask the question, like, what do I do now? Like, what do I do with the truth that the gospel is a, uh, the generosity is a gospel issue? Let's hop down, chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one 
must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, so generosity is a gospel issue, and, and here's, here's this foundational truth of generosity. You and I will reap what you and I sow. You will reap what you sow. This is why your attitude towards giving is more crucial than the amount you give. Let me say that again. If you're, if you're a note taker, you want to take this one down. Your attitude towards giving is more crucial than the amount you give. Why? Because what you sow, you reap. And if you sow in a gift that is rooted in greed, you reap greed. If you sow a gift that's rooted in fear, you reap fear. If you sow a a gift that's rooted as cheerful generosity, then you reap generosity. If you sow a gift that's rooted in trust, then you reap the benefits of trust that what you and I sow, we reap. You will never plant an apple seed and grow an orange tree. You won't. What you sow, the attitude, the approach of what you sow, it, it will reap. This is why when you give grudgingly, you don't reap contentment. What you reap is grudge. See, here's what happens when you reap greed. When you sow greed, you reap greed. You know what happens when you sow greed, you reap greed? What does greed want? More. So you sow more and then you reap more. And if you begin to sow and reap greed, you will live life never, ever finding satisfaction. Because it's impossible. But when we begin to sow thanksgiving and begin to sow generosity, what happens is we begin to reap things that actually bring satisfaction and contentment. I love this. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Sometimes I get asked, like, how much should I give? Well, what did, what did you decide in your heart? Well, I didn't think, I thought you were going to tell me. No, the Bible says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Do you know what deciding automatically entails? Forethought. Like, to decide something demands some sort of forethought. How, student section, how many of you guys are filling out, like, college applications right now? Anybody? Come on. Even if you're not, just live for a second for the point of, I got to make an illustration here. Right? How many of you are in college and you're still trying to figure out where to go to college? I'm just kidding. So here's the deal. When, 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 when students, and a lot of us have been here, you get to that junior, senior year, and you start trying to decide what school am I going to go to, right? What do you have to do? You have to have forethought. You have to go and you have to get the college application, and there's essay questions, you know, like what was the best day of your life or when I was born because nothing else was possible without that. You know, you have to ask all these questions, and you begin to kind of weed through these college applications to go to college. Now, some of y'all's forethought is, what colleges can I still apply for? That's how some of us, even in here, that's how we decided what college to go to. It was the only one that would take you. Not a lot of forethought. But we all go through those, those times where we're trying to and, and figure out what college, you have all this forethought, and then eventually you make a decision, right? The, the illustration that Paul uses is a farming illustration. He says that what you sow, you reap. And, and here's, here's what he's talking about. Farmers Before they reap an apple tree, they have to go through forethought. What's the best seed for this climate? What's the best soil? What's the best season to plant this in? When do I prune away? When do I water? And they have all these forethoughts and all these decisions they have to make. And forethought enables you to make the right decision. Here's the truth about a lot of Christians and their giving. There's no forethought. A plate comes passing by and you're like, man, if I don't tip, they're going to kick me out, or you throw it in there, or, or you get in a tight spot, and you think, well, now I'm going to figure this out. There's not a lot of forethought. I think what verse 7 is encouraging us to do is this. I think it's encouraging us to go to God and ask God, 
what should I give? The Bible says, give according to your heart, give cheerfully, and, and we should go to our Heavenly Father and go, what should I give? Now, don't go to your budget and ask your budget. Why? Your budget, unless, like, for 95% of us in the room, our budgets will not tell us give money away. Like, for 5% of you, like, you just give money away because you don't know what to do with it, and, it, and actually your budget says give it away for tax reasons, right? So, God bless you. The rest of us in the room, like, we're looking at our budget, and it ain't like, give money away. It just doesn't do it. In fact, what, when you ask your budget, what should I give? What your budget will tell you is fear. Have fear. Don't give money away. You barely can pay the bills. You can't cover your student loans. You can't cover your, your house payment. Don't be generous. And what stirs in us is fear. But when we go to the Lord, like when we go to God and we ask God, what should I give? Here's what happens. Fear fades when we hear the voice of God. Fear fades when we hear the voice of God. When God answers us, fear disappears. Here's, here's, here's how I've seen this in my life. My, my wife and I, we got married, and when we got married, um, God bless my wife. She knew from like day one that she was marrying a pastor's wife, and she's smoking hot. She's super smart. She's beautiful. Um, we had classes with like me and a bunch of football players, and she chose me, right? And, and the football players make a little more money than the preachers. And so she, she was just, she knew going into it that she was getting into this like life of like, like being, being a, a pastor's wife. And it really hit hard like, the, like probably the second or third month we were married. I was traveling and preaching. And, and when you travel and preach, there are seasons where there's really, really good, uh, a lot of camps, a lot of stuff going on. And then there are seasons where nobody's doing camps. And so we were in one of those seasons where there was not a lot going on for me to go preach, and we got an um, electric bill for like 150 bucks. And, and um, I was telling her the other night, we were talking about it, I thought we had $50 in the bank account, and my wife is a little more analytical than I. Goes, she said, no, no, we had $13 in the bank account. Now, I went to Georgia, like Georgia Tech's the engineering school, but I'm mathematically, uh, I've got enough skills to go, $13 won't pay a $100 electrical bill. I'm smart enough to figure that one out. So we were sitting there, and there was fear. And we knew God told us to be generous and tithe and to give, and we'd been doing that. And we were like, oh, my goodness, God, I think you tricked us. Did you juke us? Like, what's going on here? I got punked. And then we're fearful in that moment. And then I get a phone call. Hey, Ryan, um, our youth pastor has the flu. Would you come speak tomorrow night? We want to pay you $150. And I just remember telling the person on the phone, thank God for the flu. And they're like, what's wrong with you? I was like, never mind, I'll tell you later. Here, here's what I know. Um, Here's what I know. When you begin to ask God, what should I give? When you go to God and go, God, what should I give? The fear fades when he speaks. Fear has no place in the presence of the Lord. And so some of us are afraid to give because we have not gone to the one who has given us everything. Verse 8, here's how God, here's how he comes through. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all, all times you may abound in every good work. Uh, the Greek prefix pas, P-A-S, is in there five times. And that Greek prefix means all, whole, everything. So this verse says this, right? You should give, you should give as, as God's told you to give. Why? Because God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you would have all sufficiency in all things at all times, that you may abound in all good works. Here's where we have to really trust the Lord. God has everything. Like God's not in heaven broke as a joke, like collecting bills going, if I could just get Pat, if I could just get Ryan and the stones, 
to give me a hundred bucks. We could really get the electric bill paid in heaven. God's not in heaven broke. In fact, what God is in heaven is he's in heaven holding everything. And what God wants us to do is come to him as a heavenly father and trust him and give as he's called us to give, to trust him with our obedience. And in that moment, God gives us all we need. He is all grace, all sufficient, all times, right? I love this word, all sufficient. The word sufficiency in the Greek is all tarkian, and it means to be self-content, not in need. Here's what it means. It means to have everything one would want and need with the ability to share with others in a way that creates interdependency. Pastor Joby has said it this way, that maybe God has given us all that we have, not for all that we want, but so that others can have all that they need. This idea that God is going to give us all sufficiency, it means this. It means that God is going to give you everything that you need and give you, give you the ability to be generous towards others. That God's going to fulfill us. Think about it this way. You want to take verses 6, 7, and 8, and they're really one thought. You, you're going to reap what you're sow. And if we sow generosity, what we reap is contentment. That when you sow generosity, what you reap is contentment. When we sow generosity in response to the gospel, what we reap is that we are content. We are satisfied. I'm not saying sometimes your contentment is going, you're going to sow and reap contentment. And that contentment is going to be more money so you have more margins that you'd be content and able to give more. For some people, your margin may never increase, but God is going to change your heart, that he's given you everything you need, and that in your heart, you're going to be content with what you have. There's not necessarily a rhythm or a rhyme to the way God does it, but what I know is this, is when you sow generosity, you reap contentment. The number one attack of the enemy when it comes to money is this, and, and, and Satan's been doing the same thing since Genesis. He has been coming along lying and trying to let us buy into lies. Now, when it comes to money, because generosity equals contentment and because contentment allows our hearts to worship and because worship makes known the name of Jesus, the enemy would like to come against us and come against our concept of stewardship and generosity because Satan does not want the name of Jesus to be made known. And so he's coming at me and you. And the number one attack of the enemy is this. It's to develop in believers a scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality. Here's what it looks like. You begin to look at giving and being generous and you go, oh my goodness, if I was generous, I couldn't pay my bills. Or if I was generous now, sacrificially generous now, what would it mean for the future? See, scarcity looks the same no matter where you're at on the social economic status. It begins to question the next season in your life. Now, for some of us, the next season in our life is food on the table tomorrow. For some of us, the next season in our life is retirement 30, 40, 50 years from now. But what the enemy does in both situations is come against us and go, look, you can't trust God. Like you couldn't trust God and do what God said because it is just too financially burdensome. Like God wouldn't want you to go without. And the enemy comes and starts twisting lies and twisting. And we begin to develop this scarcity mentality. I I think... I think it, it roots in, in fear. I think it roots in fear. I think most people who have fear, the fear comes in the, in the context of finances. 
And so I, I just want you to hear this. This is, this is one of those it is written verses. So if you have fear, just let me read this over you one more time. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We need a heart check here. Here's the heart check. For all the believers in the room, you have to check your heart on this. A reluctance to give generously reflects a refusal to trust that God is all-sufficient and all-gracious. Let me read that again. A reluctance to give generously reflects a refusal to trust that God is all-sufficient and all-gracious. Here's the reason why. My, responsi- my obedience to his invitation becomes his responsibility for the, ex- for the expectation. Like my response, when he invites me to come into, when, when Jesus invites me into whatever step of obedience, my obedience becomes his responsibility. Why? All I can do is be obedient and all he can do is be responsible for everything in creation. He already is responsible for everything in creation. So what we're invited to is to go, I trust you. I'm obedient. I'm going to do the things you've called me to do, God. And when I do, I, I know you're going to take responsibility. But when we refuse to be generous, what we are ultimately saying is this. I don't trust God's going to come through. Or I don't trust that God could come through. Verse 9. As it is written, he has distributed freely and he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You see, at at its core, generosity is a gospel issue for your sanctification. Like, generosity is a gospel issue for you. Now, I just want to check us for a second. This is not the prosperity gospel. Now, if you just hop on YouTube, you can find the prosperity gospel in about five minutes. And here's what I'll tell you. Anytime you have to add anything to the word gospel, um, all it's trying to do is dilute. Because here's the deal. Gospel is sufficient. The gospel is this. You and I were created by a perfect God, and we were created to be perfect and live in communion with him. But we sinned, and because of our sin, we earned death and separation from God. And that's bad news. The good news is this, is that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and has offered to us righteousness. That's offered to us eternal life if we would give him in exchange to him our record of sin and death. And that's the good news, is that we were dead, but because of what Christ did on the cross, we are alive. That's sufficient. Doesn't need any help. Doesn't need any propping up. Sufficient. This, this is not, when we talk about giving, we're not talking about the prosperity gospel. Now, here's the deal. We have a good heavenly father who loves us and wants good things for us. But this is not a Ponzi scheme in, in heaven. This is not to come put $5 in play and you'll get 500 back. I'm not saying that God will not increase your financial margin. I'm just saying that's not what we come for. That's greed and it will only reap greed. Generosity and thanksgiving reaps generosity and thanksgiving. When we trust, when we so trust, we trust that God is good, that God's the one who provides the seed to begin with, that God's the one who provides the the food, the bread, he provides everything we need. We begin to trust him in that. And what happens is, is he increases the harvest of our righteousness. Meaning this, when we trust God, we grow and we sanctify and we look more and more and more like Jesus. My prayer for us is that every time we gather as a church, as a body, that we would look more like Jesus. 
It's called sanctification. It's every day we fall more in love with Jesus. We look more like Jesus into a, a world that needs to see the love of Jesus. You and I have the opportunity to do that. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Hey, did you know you're a worship leader? Did you know that? Some of you are thinking, I'm a horrible singer. And you are, and Jesus loves a righteous racket just as much as a joyful noise, right? But that's not what I'm talking about, right? You don't have to get up here and sing, sing Sweet Home Alabama, right? Um, you are a worship leader, meaning this. Every time you're generous, people see your generosity, and it leads them to be thankful to God. That our generosity, now I'm not saying you should get up and like wave one of those like big like golf tournament checks and like walk it around and be like, I'm trying to lead you in worship. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying every time we're generous, every time we are generous with what God's given us, it leads to worship. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Here's, here's what you gotta know. Generosity is a gospel issue for those in need. That at its core, generosity is a gospel issue because people have need. Did you know that you're rich? Turn to your neighbor real quick and tell them, hey, bro, you're rich. Hey, sis, you're rich. Just tell them. I could like, proclaim it to them, all right? And if she's cute and she ain't got a ring on, you can go, hey, you're rich, I'm rich. Maybe I'll take you to dinner. What's up, right? That might help, right? Here, here's the, I want you to know you're rich. And I know you're rich because you... We live in America. Now, relatively, you may think I'm not rich compared to the people sitting on my road. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like world wealth. Here's the deal. If you were a high school student, high school junior, you got a part-time job making $7.93 an hour, right? Just minimum wage, 20 hours a week. You would be rolling in about 8,200 bucks a month. You'd be living it up, right? Do you know if you, if you made 8,200 bucks, not a month, a year, well, that's really good. I might want to get that job at Chick-fil-A, right? Woo. My wife does all the counting in our house. All of it. There's like two kids, and she won't even let me count to two. She's like, just, they're both here, right? You're making $8,200 a year, right? Woo. Did you know that if you, if you were a part-time minimum wage employee at Chick-fil-A, you'd be in the top 18% of wealth in the world? You'd be in the top 18% of the wealthiest people in the entire world. If you were minimum wage, full-time, $16,000 a year, you're in the top 6.5% of wealth in the whole world. If you made $50,000, the average household income for the state of Florida, $50,000, you're in the 0.31% of the world. And if your house is raking in $100,000, you're in the 0.08% of the world. Here's how rich we are in America. A high school junior at at minimum wage, part-time, makes in one year what a full-time worker in Indonesia makes in 11. It would take a decade for someone in Indonesia to make what what it takes for a part-time employee at Chick-fil-A to make in one year. I'm not trying to get you all feeling bad. I'm just trying to say, God, you're rich. God's given you everything you need to be generous. He's given you everything you need to meet needs. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like when you put your money, when you invest and partner with the gospel and you give your money to the church through the giving box, through the kiosk, through the app, through uh, we have an ability for you to give automatically. You can fill that out. Every time you give because you're rich and you have the ability to be generous, you, we're the church, we're partnering together to meet physical needs. 
Here's what I mean. One of the ways we meet physical needs is through our local and global partners. That this church gives a ten, gives ten. We give a tithe. We give ten percent of our of our annual budget. We give it away to local partners and global partners. We'll give about four hundred sixty thousand dollars away to places like Compassion International, sponsoring kids, releasing kids from poverty in the name of Jesus. Places like First Coast Women's Service, which is a local ministry to come alongside young women who find out I'm pregnant and I don't know what to do. Other places like Salzbacher, who's coming alongside of people who have found themselves homeless and coming alongside and helping them get a job and, and get their life back together the way they dreamed it would be. Places like Heartfelt, that literally meets the physical needs of senior citizens so they would live their, their last decade of life, their last de- years of life in, in a way that's honorable and respectable and, and has dignity. Like we're, we're partnering with church plants throughout Jacksonville and America and the world to make known and, and meet the physical needs of people even beyond our uh, circle of influence, right? We're also partnering with places like Okoa in Uganda and Tiny Hope and Baby Box Church in Korea for the sake of the gospel, rescuing orphans. And so every time you put a, a dollar in, into the, invest a dollar in the church, 10 cents of it, like just 10th of it, just immediately is going to meet physical needs through our partners, now, we also have, like, physical needs here. Like, I don't know if you know this, uh, but it costs money to do church. Like, they're, they're, like this building costs money. The, the, the function, the ministry costs money. Staffing costs money. Um, paying the light bill costs money. I asked our finance team, I said, hey, um, can you guys just give me a list of some of the things we're spending money on? And they gave me a few things that I think are kind of interesting. And I just, we had them break it down by week so it would make sense. So um, each, each year we do an annual audit. We want to be a church that has integrity. We want to be uh, above reproach. So each year we do an annual audit. And this year uh, per week, it costs about $423 a week to pay for this audit so that we would be above reproach. Um, we have insurance, and every week it costs about $747 to cover the insurance on this place. That's just a wise investment. Um, we clean the place every week, right? Um, we clean the place. We, we put new toilet paper in the bathrooms, which is good. If you've ever been to a public bathroom, there's no toilet paper, you think that's a good idea. We, put, we tidy up, we take the trash out, we clean this place. Why? Every week we think we're going to have guests, so we want to get the house ready. And it costs about $825 a week to get the place clean and stocked and everything that we need so the house would be ready. Um, IT, how many of you guys are like using your smartphone right now to read the Bible or you're using the app or you're checking scores? I just confess it, right? How many of you guys checked in kids that little kids are at kids? Like you checked a kid in, all right? Every weekend, every weekend we have, it costs us every week, costs about $2,000 to, to, to build and, and operate the infrastructure, the IT infrastructure, the Wi-Fi, the ability that we can show a live stream into the sanctuary. All those things are rooted in the ability to, to pay for it, right? Now, this one, this may shock some of you, but every weekend we have worship experiences. We have worship gatherings. We have a 722 on Thursday night. We have two Sunday morning services. We have a 522. Uh, we have uh, students gathered on Wednesday night. There's, there's little kids and kids gathering all over. And every week for us to pull off worship gatherings, it costs about $7,500, right? We had to pay for chairs. We had to pay for amps. We had to pay for guitar strings, right? We had to pay for this really cool this thing right here, right? This podium. We had to pay for the lighting bill. We have, to pay. we have to pay for all of those things. Now, here's why it's perfectly okay for church to cost money. Because what we realize is that to do things in a way in which ministry has to be done, we know it costs money. It just does. There's material, physical needs. And we are actively stewarding and investing the dollars that come in to the church for one purpose, 
God's called us to be the church and preach the gospel. And so we believe that what we are to do is be the church and preach the gospel. So we know this. We know ministry costs money. But we also know this, that ministry points to Jesus. And when we invest and leverage our generosity to point to Jesus, life change happens. And when life change happens, that we, we celebrate it and we become thankful in our worship, we glorify God. And so every time we take a dollar and invest it into the material needs of the church, we're doing it for one reason, to stir the spiritual needs of the people. So we turn lights on so that we can read the Bible and the Bible could change us. And so every week we gather and light bulbs cost money and, and, and ministry costs money. And every week we begin to invest and steward those dollars for one purpose, to glorify God that lives would change, that community would happen, and that every time we invest in material stuff, it would stir in us spiritual. And so the spiritual needs that God's meeting in this place, he meets them every single weekend. And every single person that sits in every single seat we have has a story of how God is meeting them. And it all begins with generosity. And so I wanted to share with you one of those stories. So if you turn your attention to the screens, I want to share with you the story of Bob Kelly. Okay, uh, I was born in California in Los Angeles. Uh, grew up there until I was 10 years old. And then my dad sold everything and we moved up to Oregon where he bought a ranch. And we uh, had a pretty good sized ranch, a thousand acre ranch up there. And then in my last year of high school, he uh, sold everything and we moved down to Arizona. Uh, all through my younger life, I did believe in Jesus, God. But I went to a variety of churches. I was raised Catholic. And uh, so I experienced different, different religions uh, up to the point to going into the Army, uh, which was in Arizona, which was nothing there really for me in Arizona. So that's why I joined the service and uh, got shipped overseas. While I was in Germany, I got involved in uh, a lot of things with the public there. Uh, we did a lot of bolts marching, which was like your 5K marches, uh, walks, stuff like that. And then did that a lot until it came to a point to where... Um, I was involved in a murder uh, investigation. I witnessed a murder over there, and uh, five of us ended up getting contracts put on us uh, by the friends of the uh, people that were involved in it, and uh, ended up getting caught out of a club one night and got stabbed, and uh, two months later got stabbed again. I was stabbed 17 times with numerous cuts on my arms and stuff, um, so it was a pretty traumatic experience for me. And that's when I realized that uh, I had somebody watching over me and my faith in Jesus came back. Ended up moving down to Las Vegas where I met my, my wife. We have been married for 33 years now. And uh, I couldn't ask for a better woman in my life. She's a very strong person. And uh, she gave me a great son, uh, which I respect and um, I'm very proud of. He gave me a great granddaughter. As in moving down here to Florida, uh, I have a neighbor, Tim Futch, that uh, has tried to talk me into going to the Church of the 1122. And so I finally went, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad he talked me into it. Um, about a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, stage four. Uh, it's, uh, it has already gotten into my my bones, my backbone, my spine, my hips. Um, 
or it was about three weeks ago, I was told that I had six months left. Uh, the chemo medication has not been working. I'm on my fifth one. Uh, knowing that uh, you have six months, so to say, left, uh, kind of hit you kind of hard at first, but then you just understand that uh, there's something better beyond this that is waiting for you. You know, whatever time you have left uh, here on Earth, uh, you do the best you can. As far as my cancer, uh, that did not bring me back to the church. Uh, it didn't bring me back to God. It didn't give me my my friends. Uh, God provided friends and my family for me to lean on to. This is a tough time to go through, and for anybody to do it alone, uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Uh, so I have the support of God and Jesus and the support of your family and the love of the family and your friends uh, is a very important thing uh, to go through this with. After everything I've been through in my life uh, and the trials that I've, I've been put through, uh, I believe now more than ever that uh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Here at 1122, you'll often hear us make the statement that we are family. And one of the things I love about Bob's story is when he talks about his neighbor inviting him into church and that he didn't want to go and his neighbor continued to be persistent and he kind of came against his will. And one of the things I love about our family is that we don't care how you got here, we're just glad that you're here. And Bob, we're so glad that you're here today and we're glad that we can celebrate this step of faith with you and we can celebrate what God's doing in you because of what he's done for you. And so... I want to ask you, who is Jesus Christ to you? Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Well, based on that profession of faith, it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Here's why we wanted to baptize someone in the middle of a sermon on giving. I want you to see what happens in generosity. We get invited into this cycle of what God's doing. Here's what I mean. Generosity leads to worship. Like when we begin to get generous, the Bible says that, that all of a sudden other people begin to, we have thanksgiving, we begin to become joyful because of what God is doing. And when, we're, when generosity leads to worship, worship leads to Jesus being lifted up and made, made much of. And as we lift up Jesus and make much of Jesus, what happens is people are drawn to Jesus and life change happens. So generosity leads to worship and worship leads to Jesus being lifted up and Jesus being lifted up leads to life change. And then when you go from death to life, it leads you to, to gratitude. And we become gracious and gr we have this, such gratitude for what God has done. It completes the circle and moves us to generosity. And so when you are generous with your money. What God is doing is using you to be a part of this grand, epic story that God's been active in for, for years and years and years. That your generosity would allow us to even uh, gather and worship Jesus and put a baptism video on the screen and that worship, that generosity would lead to Jesus being lifted up and Jesus being lifted up would lead to life change. And life change leads, leaves us with gratitude. That what God's calling us to do with our money and with our treasures is to leverage them and invest them so that more people would know who 
Christ is. Like if we say, I love this church and love, love what God's doing with this church, let's just be honest. This church is rooted in generosity. Like we, we, we are even a church because Beach United Methodist said, we're going to be generous and launch you and let you go and let you be a church. So at our core is generosity. And, and as we as people say, I love this church and I love what God's doing, God's inviting you not to just love it, but to be a part of it. Not to just love what God is doing and flexing, but to be a part of it. Here's the deal. We can give because we're submitted to the gospel. And we're submitted to the gospel because of the surpassing grace of God. Here's, here's what I mean. Because of the grace of God, the gospel infiltrated our hearts and our lives, and we've chosen to submit our lives to the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And because of that submitting to the gospel and proclamation of Jesus, it leads us not just to the principle of giving, but to the ability to give. Here's the point. The point is this. We can give because God already gave. We can give because God did give. We can give because God gave. You and I have the ability to be generous. Generosity is not rooted in our circumstances. It's not rooted in our abilities. It's not rooted in our bank accounts. It's not rooted in our religiousness. Like generosity is not rooted in how good you are, how much money you have or don't have, how good or bad your life circumstances are right now, how good or bad you are just naturally as a giver. As a giver. Generosity is not rooted in any of that. Generosity is rooted in the cross because it's in the cross that Jesus gave us life. So we have to ask one question and this is it. How do I respond? If generosity is a gospel issue, How do I respond to the gospel with generosity? Four quick things for us to consider as we leave. Number one is this. Give thanks for what you have and what God has done. Like the root, the beginning of generosity is Philippians 2.14. We do everything without complaining or arguing. And at its root, generosity starts in us when we are thankful. See, when we complain, all we're doing is going, God, you're not giving me what I want. But when we're thankful, we're going, God, you've given me all I need. And it's in that moment that what begins to stir in us is gratitude. When we realize I was dead in my sins and now I have life. That I was reaping greed, but now I'm, now I'm reaping generosity and sowing contentment. Second thing we need to do this is this. We need to ask God, what should I do with my money? Like we just, you and I need to spend time asking God what I should do with my money. Some of us, that's been part of our story and we may have just drifted from it and we need to come back to it. Some of us, we didn't even know you were supposed to ask God. And so here's what I love. Whether you're coming back and it's repenting or rejoicing or, or just trying to figure out what the heck's going on, God loves us all the same. And so we would ask God, what should I do with my money? Just here's some things he's already said in chapter eight. Give accordingly, give sacrificially, give earnestly, give first. That in chapter eight, what Paul tells the church in Corinth is give according to what God's given you. That all you're trying to do is respond to what God's given you. Give sacrificially. That sometimes giving is going to hurt and it's actually good for us to feel that pain and to know that God's going to come through and take care of the pain. Give earnestly, passionately. You should have some like, some, some gusto behind your giving. And then give first. Because when you look at your budget, your budget's going to say not give. But when you ask God, God's going to say give first and then we'll take care of the rest. Third is this, give che- cheerfully give. So Give thanks, ask God, and third is cheerfully give. What what does that mean? Well, we don't pass the plate here. You know why? We don't want you to give under compulsion. We want you to give in response to who God is. And that's that's to give cheerfully. 
There's a few ways you can do that. Our app, you can download the app and you can give through the app. You can, at any point in response, you can go to one of our giving boxes. You can go to a kiosk in the back and you can give during response. You also can fill this out and begin to give automatically. Some of you, God's telling you this moment, you better give and you better be obedient right now because you know if you walk away from here, you're going to let the... You're going to let all the fears come back in. And so we give. And then fourth is this. Fourth is this. Trust God. Just trust God. For those of you who have never given before, I'm going to ask you to just just be thankful for what you have, to ask God what he's called you to give, to cheerfully give, and then I'm going to ask you to trust God. And here's one way you can do that. Just cheerfully give. Be generous for the rest of the year. 120 days, four months. At the end of the four months, you start to give whatever that percent is that God tells you to give and you give and God does not come through on his promise to make to give you contentment and to take care of you. At the end of four months, you have my permission to stop. Here's why I can say that. Because God does not break his promises. God does not go back on his word. And so if his word says he has everything you need to be sufficient at all times and all things, he's going to come through. So we have, to, we have to give thanks. We have to ask God, what should I do with my money? We should cheerfully give and we should trust God. So I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to stand and we're going to respond to the gospel. I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, some of you in this moment, you're just going to sit back down and fill you out your card or you're going to give on your app. Some of you in this time of response, you're going to come down and pray at the altars because you need to repent. You need to rejoice. You just need to ask God, God, I've never even asked you, but what would you have me give with my money? And then some of us, we're going to sing, and we're going to sing the song, and, and the song has come to me, and we're going to sing, and it's going to be a proclamation of the fact that, that we're coming to Jesus because he's all-sufficient. He's everything we need. We're going to sing that. So pray with me. Lord, we love you. Thank you, God, that you love us. God, I thank you that whether we come to you repenting or rejoicing, that you, come, you, you receive us the same because you love us because we're responding to what you've already done. And so, God, I pray that we would be generous, that we'd sow generosity, that we would reap contentment, that we would hear your voice and watch fear fade. God, may we trust you in this. May we respond to you. God, may we know you. God, it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.